This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury, of course. This is Matt Splained. What do you get when you cross a tech billionaire with ball whips and rubber? No, 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 no. It's it's not a riddle. It's actually an episode of Matt Splained, and I apparently have to try and somehow keep this out of libelous territory. Um, Matt, I'm really hoping that each one of these things that I've just mentioned is... Um, a separate story today. Uh, hey, Rich. Yeah, don't stress too much. Um, we'll start with that tech billionaire. Now, I could say, can anyone guess who it is? But it's not really a game, is it? Everyone knows it's got to be Elon Musk. Um, we might as well start to call this show um, Elon Watch. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, this week has, uh, has been an especially busy one for Mr. Musk. Uh, lots of SpaceX news, um, a massive flurry of activity over the past couple of weeks. Uh, astonishingly, SpaceX has launched almost 50 rockets already this year. That's and crazy. I know. I mean, just think about that for a minute. I mean, the world used to stop when NASA or another space agency, you know, just did one launch. Mm. But mm. now commercial space agencies are doing this, you know, pretty much every day of the week. I don't know. I mean, that... Isn't that a bit of a stretch? Every day of the week? Well, I mean, it sounds as though it is, but not really. I mean, SpaceX launched three missions just the last week. It, it The last okay. week. I mean, it did two on one day alone. It did a crewed mission for the ISS uh, and a second that launched more than 50 Starlink satellites. That was, both of those were on, you know, the previous Tuesday. Then mm. it followed that with a launch the following Saturday, which launched uh, a further two commercial satellites. And actually the, the Falcon 9 rocket that made that Saturday launch, that was a world beating 14th liftoff for that rocket stage. Huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the, the premises for spaceflight to be cheap enough to be commercially viable was that rockets need to be reusable. And actually, we're yeah. going to get to an alternative to this later on in the show. But, you know, it, it doesn't seem like very long ago that SpaceX was having, you know, just massive trouble getting those mm. boosters to land on their ocean platforms. And now we're seeing them doing multiple launches in a day, and we're seeing those those rocket stages being used multiple times. I mean, it, it's astonishing how quickly they've gotten to this stage. Okay, uh, so um, whilst we're speaking about Mr. Musk, what else have we got? And I can guess what it might be. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be Twitter. Um, yeah. Once again, we're, we're in this kind of fast evolving mode of the Twitter story. Uh, now we're recording this episode a few days before it's broadcast. So apologies as, you know, apologies if the story has moved on by 270 degrees since we recorded <laughs> this. Um, but one of the things we mentioned in passing on last week's show is that even though Twitter and Musk seem to have come to some kind of detente that would allow their mm. deal to proceed, it wasn't clear whether the banks supporting that deal would still be willing to, to back it any longer. Mm -hmm. uh, so according to a report that was published by Bloomberg last Saturday, the consortium of banks led by Morgan Stanley, which would provide around $13 billion of debt financing for that deal, uh, 
under the terms, the existing terms, they now stand to lose around $500 million if that deal goes ahead, which is, uh, an, you know, an enormous amount of money. Uh, yeah. According to some reports, the, the deal with Musk didn't allow for whether or not the banks would be able to sell that debt. Now, when they made that that deal in April, the markets looked fantastic. So it didn't seem as though there'd be any issues. And of course, mm -hmm. that's typically where they earn a lot of their fees. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, since April, markets have been in turmoil. Central banks have put up interest rates around the world. And investors in the bond markets are looking for safer havens. Not to mention that uh, around 400 million of those uh, projected losses will come from high-yield unsecured bonds, which are just the kind of things that investors are looking to stay away from in their kind of short-term projections. Do you think the banks will back out? Well, according to most analysts, because of the terms they negotiated, there are currently kind of few to no reasons that might allow them to back out. And of course, markets will be watching. Um, they'll mm. be aware that the banks are going to be writing down these loans. So uh, the only hope they might have is that $1 billion walkaway clause that Musk can trigger. Um, but at the same time, Musk put out a statement last weekend saying that taking over Twitter was never about the money, um, which I'm sure is going to make those bankers feel even more secure about going <laughs> ahead with this deal. Is that the trial still going ahead? Well, yeah. So this is something that we mentioned on the, sh the last show as well. Mm. No one had asked the judge to postpone the legal action resulted from Twitter suing Musk to force him to complete the purchase of the company. So it seems that Twitter is not quite ready to take him at his word, with its lawyers stating that postponing or abandon, abandoning the litigation was an invitation to further mischief and delay. Uh, so for their part, Musk's lawyers have expressed astonishment that the trial will go ahead. Uh, they've called Twitter a company that's incapable of taking yes for an answer. So, you know, we're, we're trading tit for tat stuff, which is quite amusing. Um, huh. But there you go. We're, we're halfway to the break and uh, we're still talking about the man with the touch of Musk. Oh, Elon's Musk. I, I, anyway, uh, let's just go back a little bit uh, to that point you made about uh, making money. Um, do we know if there's like a, a broader business picture inside um, Elon's mind or and his vision for the platform? Well, I mean, we can try and, you know, clutching at straws, maybe looking well, into I mean, crystal I, balls. and Yeah, I think it is a, an element of that. But, you know, I don't think those banks necessarily need to worry too much uh, that that he's just going to, you know, start throwing their money at mm. this Twitter wall. Um, he has hinted at what this kind of broader business picture uh, could be. Now, I'm only going to cover this briefly because this is something um, that we might come back to as a full episode. We might do it as a Substack exclusive. Uh, he tweeted recently that he sees Twitter as an accelerant for an everything, a do-everything app that he's calling X. Now, we don't know what X is. Uh, I imagine it marks the spot. And mm -hmm. I'm not being facetious with that. You know, a lot of Musk's visions seem to be framed in that golden era of kids' fiction in the kind of 1960s. So, you know, I can imagine him doing X marks the spot as a pirate reference. You know, mm -hmm. I can totally imagine him buying into that vision. 
The speculation is that what he means by a do-everything app is this kind of WeChat-type app that encompasses communication, online shopping, payment gateways, uh, access to government or municipal services, you know, the kind of thing that we have in Malaysia with Grab and a mm. ton of other competitors. Now, we know that Musk is also known to be an admirer of Tencent, which is WeChat's parent company. So that's the kind of speculation around what an iteration of uh, X as an everything app could be. Yeah, but... Could Twitter even anchor that kind of service? Well, that's kind of the argument, and that's why we can't get into it too deeply today because it's very broad. So I'll just touch on some of the bullet points. There's a, a set of quite unique circumstances that have helped to create WeChat in China. Mm. Uh, state control over media sources is one really critical element. So there's mm -hmm. less diversity in the media sphere than you see elsewhere. And that consolidation and close contact between the government and commercial entities in China makes it easier to integrate those government and municipal services within apps like WeChat, things like booking a medical appointment. And of course, China never sort of developed the card payment systems uh, as widely as a lot of other countries did. So it mm. went straight to mobile devices and QR codes and beat most of the world to that kind of uh, mm -hmm. electronic payment system. Uh, and what about social positioning? Well, the the core WeChat service is uh, also different from Twitter in that it's a direct messaging service that was expanded to include a social publishing aspect, the, the, the public accounts as they're called. Uh, in more pluralistic countries, we have a lot more diverse spaces. Mm. You know, um, look at the media universe we have access to. Um, then the the social space, uh, in the social space, you know, you've got Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok um, for direct messaging. There's WhatsApp, Signal, Facebook Messenger, Telegram. And plus, you know, there's that diversity of electronic payment systems um, from your Grab, Shopee-style wallets to Apple Pay. You know, we mm -hmm. have all of these alternatives. So China is a very different market. Um, plus, of course, WeChat is ubiquitous in that it appeals to every generation. Younger consumers, uh, the ones who are most likely to be technology early adopters, they're not on Twitter. Um, couple that with the extremely deep pockets of Tencent, you know, to make WeChat and everything app, Tencent had to buy or partner and integrate with shopping companies, logistic companies, game developers, you know, all mm. of these other aspects. So that's an extremely expensive prospect just for Twitter to do in the US, not even to look at its international markets. And of course, there's no guarantee of success. You know, it's quite likely that consumers would pick a rival platform. I mean, mm -hmm. how would how would Twitter come into Malaysia and replicate that when mm -hmm. all of these other services are already doing these e-payment wallet type? apps. So that's not to say that X can't be done, that it won't be done, uh, but it's a risky proposition or a, a, a kind of, it's a, a, a risky model um, for an acquisition that already itself looks quite risky. What's next on the Musk do list? Sorry, that's a, a pun that I forced Richard to uh, to say. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I don't know about the rest of you. But anyway, it, it has been a bit of a bumper week 
um, in the land of Elon, as I said, uh, when we reported on Tesla's AI day and talked about the progress on Optimus, the company's humanoid robot, uh-huh. it's, yeah, it seemed possible that Musk would be selling his own version of Jarvis before the company had put the Cybertruck into production. Mm. Uh, because since the Cybertruck was announced in 2019, companies like the startup uh, Rivian have beaten them to market. And this year, Ford launched an uh, electric version of the gazillion selling F-150 truck line. Uh, GMC has even revived the Hummer as an all-electric platform Although mm-hmm. at over a hundred thousand US dollars, it's very much for the luxury end of the market. So we don't have the Cybertruck on the near horizon. Uh, Musk's latest prediction is that it will probably come out next year. Won't that hurt its uh, marketability? What? Because so many are already in the market. I, I mean, I genuinely don't know. You know, as a brand, Tesla's a bit like Apple. It seems pretty impervious to what its competitors are doing. Apple can launch a new phone with features that cheaper Android devices have had for years, and people still go googly-eyed and Mm. buy them. Or rather, they don't go googly-eyed because if they went googly-eyed, they'd buy an Android. Uh, But I see Tesla in much the same way. Someone who wants a Tesla isn't likely to go out and buy, you know, a Nissan Leaf. Um, maybe Rivian is more of a direct competitor for the Cybertruck than the uh, the EV version of the F-150 or the Hummer. Um, but I don't think it will stop the company selling as many of these vehicles as it can produce. Mm. But that's not um, the point, really. You know, one of the uh, the things that Musk said about his uh, uh, Twitter acquisition was that it's not like he's buying a yacht and mm-hmm. that he doesn't own one anyway. Uh, not that anybody was actually asking if he owned any yachts. Um, but I think it was around the time of the Cybertruck launch. He mentioned that because the vehicle is technically waterproof, it would be able to make short journeys over water. Mm-hmm. Now, he seems to have put more thought into that idea. And he recently talked about adding an electric propeller to the tow hitch bar of the Cybertruck, which would enable it to move through the water at a few miles per hour. Um, so not exactly a speedboat, but um, you know, if it makes it from brain dart to production, that's really cool functionality for countries where flash flooding is an issue. I don't yeah. know if you know of any countries like that. Um, or <laughs> if you're off-roading over uh, water or you need to make uh, short water journeys. Yeah, but it's not much of a story there, Matt. What, uh, a tweet about a propeller on the back? No, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, it was actually only meant to be um, uh, an aside, and then we got into the market proposition of the brand. Um, but it was actually a, a throwaway on the journey towards another Tesla truck story. Now, Tesla announced its semi-trucks back in, I think, 2017, like, you know, the big articulated mm. lorry rigs. Um, so commercial delivery vehicles, um, which is kind of ironic because the delivery of the delivery vehicles has been delayed numerous times. But it seems that we will finally see Tesla lorries on the road very soon. Uh, the company announced that they would start delivering trucks to PepsiCo in the US from the 1st of December. Uh, the trucks are going to have a range of 500 to 800 kilometers, depending on the configuration. And, and uh, this is the really amazing bit. 
they will hit 100 kilometers an hour in about five seconds. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine, yeah, uh, that's that's incredible speed for, for these huge monsters. Uh, I do wonder if we'll see a lot of companies limiting the uh, the acceleration speeds, um, you know, mm. having them chipped or whatever. Um, in any case, if they perform as well as advertised, that could be the genuine start of an EV revolution in commercial traffic. Uh, we could start to see um, fleets replacing uh, aging diesel and petrol guzzling land freight with these theoretically more environmentally friendly machines. And so ends the section we shall call The Fables of Elon. <laughs> okay. And when we come back, um, sci-fi meets the metaverse, whips, stealth rubber, and space guns. My, I have no idea what you're asking me to talk about today, but I'm really <laughs> worried. We'll be back, of course, uh, for more Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Brand-friendly marketeers, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. The fables of Elon may be over, uh, but there are still plenty of tall tales on today's show. I believe we're heading over into the metaverse next. Yeah, so I've been to a, a couple of conferences re uh, recently where the metaverse has been uh, sort of on the table. And the interesting thing, and this is something we've mentioned before, is that there's no real definition or even common perception of what the metaverse is. Mm. Uh, typically, as in respect to commercial entities anyway, the metaverse is whatever is likely to benefit that company the most. So right. it might be a virtual reality paradise, it could be a, a crypto utopia, or it could be a place full of digital malls and avatars. So typically it involves some kind of walled garden. I mean, it might be a vast and lushly featured walled garden, but something that stops you from interacting with the next person's metaverse vision. Now, if we go back to where that name comes from, it's actually attributed to the science fiction author Neil Stevenson. He uh, coined the term in his 1992 novel, Snow Crash. Uh, his fiction has also imagined versions of cryptocurrency as well as virtual worlds. So, you know, he's, he's thought of as a sort of thought leader in this space. Mm. Stevenson has just founded his own company, Lamina One, with the purpose of creating an open and decentralized metaverse that's built on the blockchain. Uh, there's a white paper that you can read on the project on lamina1.com. Now, details are still you know, quite scant, but the core of the idea seems to be that Lamina One would serve as this kind of framework of an open metaverse. It would handle operability or interoperability between the different builds that sit on the platform, while its blockchain handles payments and verifies the identity and authenticity of the users. Have we got any idea of what this framework uh, framework would look like yet? 
Well, that doesn't seem to be too clear yet. So I, I read about this in the New Scientist, and there seem to be a couple of options for the way it could go. One would be a common open source or partly open source platform. So, you know, kind of like the Linux of the metaverse. Mm -hmm. So developers could build their own metaverse frameworks on top of this platform. The second is a kind of metaverse umbrella where you put up your uh, metaverse tent within that larger umbrella. So everyone's walking around in different sort of buildings on the same street, if you like. So both of these are, are possible. The thinking from the open source community seems to prefer the former idea, this idea of just having a common framework. Uh, the idea of um, having that idea of lots of different metaverses with a certain degree of interoperability. Uh, now, there is already an open metaverse alliance, so it'll be interesting to see whether Stevenson's Lamina One decides to join that grouping. Mm -hmm. But the New Scientist article quotes Kalila Lang, who's the founder of uh, an open source metaverse software platform called Vercadia, uh, and she talks about that issue of interoperability. Um, because the idea of having full interoperability in her view uh, is kind of largely unworkable. I mean, she calls it dumb because she says, you know, the characters that you create and the items that you own in one world may not apply to another one. Mm -hmm. And she points mm -hmm. out that you couldn't take your weapons from Call of Duty into Assassin's Creed without breaking the game so the key yeah. yeah the key is to have systems that allow the physical users to move seamlessly between these environments but to retain individual characters or entities in uh, each world but yeah it's going to be interesting to see how the metaverse of neil stevenson's imagination can be rendered into this you know physical digital thing I mean, that's all well and good, but I'm starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable because there are things that we've mentioned that we haven't mentioned yet, and I'm starting to feel a bit uncomfortable because we're going to have to dip into that territory right now. And so, I'm, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit about what? You've got a apprehensive problem? about what we're diving into. You've got a problem with whips, rubber, and guns? <laughs> yes. <laughs> please, a, please keep it uh, family-friendly. It's all right. It's all under control. You don't have to press that panic button that connects you to the uh, the legal team. Um, the first is a, a story that I saw in uh, the New York Times. Now, um, it turns out that we don't actually understand how the human brain learns to control and manipulate a whip. Now, very skilled whip performers can do all kinds of uh, tricks. You know, they can play Jenga. They can hit targets on, on demand. But how? Um, when, you, when you use a whip, when you wield a whip, it can actually move in infinite ways. Uh, the end of the whip rotates. It can turn. It can twist. It can bend. So the leather is really flexible. or The hide that it's made from is very flexible. And it performs differently every time motion and force are applied to it. Yet the human brain can become very skilled at utilizing a whip. I don't know whether now is a good time to tell you that I had one as a kid. Um but anyway, is there a point in, in, in doing all of this? There is, but we have to get back to the point of why did you have a whip and what did you know. use it for? <laughs> just, just for playing outside with, you know, whipping bits of grass and, uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that, Matt. 
Okay. All right. I bet you were a popular chap. Um, anyway, um, no, I mean, knowing, knowing uh, why, I mean, in terms of the point for this, knowing why stuff works is always good. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we do seem very simple, but they can be very complex to uh, for machines to replicate. So something as simple as tying shoelaces, for example, you know, you show it to a child and it becomes second nature very quickly, but it's very hard to get a robot to learn to tie a shoelace. Um, mm -hmm. Or the one that we've mentioned on the show before with autonomous cars. You know, explaining to a machine what stop means is difficult because mm -hmm. we know when we need to stop, but we don't always know why we know that we need to stop. So mm. breaking that down into discrete steps for a machine to follow is very difficult. And it turns out that whips are kind of similar. Uh, if we have a, a better understanding of how the whip behaves and how we process and anticipate that behavior, there is potential beyond our simple understanding of the science because it's not just about whips. A lot of the objects in our world are non-rigid and wobbly. They don't behave in predictable ways. So understanding how we control those objects can help when it comes to advancing robotics. But also they think that by understanding the biomechanics, we can also build better prosthetics and other assistive devices because mm -hmm. we understand then the range of motion that's needed to use these non-rigid objects. So scientists at Northeastern University in Boston studied 16 mostly novice bullwhippers. Uh, they used an almost uh, two meter long whip that was equipped with motion detecting sensors. These allowed cameras to capture the position of the whip and study its motion at high speeds. So one of the findings seems to be that speed is really the key ingredient here and also the position of the whip at the start. So the more mm -hmm. stretched out the whip is, so the less curled it is, uh, and the faster the movement of the hand that flicks it, the less potential the whip has for bending or wobbling before it strikes the target in front of it. And there you go. As you said, a family-friendly whipping story. Yeah, I'm, I'm now a little bit more um, – yeah, I suppose I am a little bit more confident about letting you talk about rubber. Okay, well, this is another new scientist story, and it's actually about stealth rubber. Whoa, I um, don't know about – Yeah, <laughs> exactly. On. No, this, is, this isn't something you use for prowling around in somebody's <laughs> garden. Um, this is a material that can be used to mask submarines from sonar detection. So, oh. of course, sonar works by bouncing sand waves off objects in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, this discovery was made by researchers at Xianjiao Tong University in China. I've probably butchered that horribly. Um, the material is incredibly thin at around 32 millimeters thick. Uh, the team then actually tuned the um the the makeup of the material using ai to create a composite rubber material that would reflect a diverse range of sound wave frequencies so what they've come up with is this material where uh, parts of the rubber have rectangular strips of lead running through them while other parts feature pyramid-shaped air cavities. Uh, in simulations, the material absorbed uh, the most widely used sonar frequencies with an efficiency rate of about 95%. Doesn't that mean, though, that there'd still be echoes? 
Yeah, but the echoes would be very faint or they could be things that would be confused with, uh, you know, natural structures underwater, you know, things like reefs, uh, rocks that you would expect to mm. absorb a lot of the waves. Mm -hmm. So the team still has work to do to create a material that can uh, be manufactured easily, but they're also looking at ways of adapting it further so that it's more suited to be used at the depths that submarines typically travel at. Um, I mean, I'll be really honest, I'm not sure if creating the perfect stealth submarine is a right. great idea. Uh, I don't know if we want undetectable machines floating around in the seas, but, um, you know, interesting advances in material science. That's something that we've always looked at on the show. Plus, you know, stealth rubber. What's not to love? Okay. Um, so I take it you're bringing out the big guns uh, to end the week with? Yeah. And not just in a metaphorical sense. So this is a, a story about another commercial space uh, startup called Spin Launch. Now, they've devised a way um, to use kinetic energy projectiles to deliver payloads into orbit rather than using, you know, these big chemical powered rockets like NASA, SpaceX and most space startups. Mm. Um, so I know what some people thinking. Um, they've built a, a slingshot or a space trebuchet. Um, <laughs> and basically they have. Uh, the giant slingshot they've built at the uh, the Spaceport America facility in New Mexico, it actually looks more like an enclosed centrifuge with a barrel on one side. And if that doesn't help, imagine one of those wind-up things that you fire Hot Wheel cars out of. Ah, but pointed at the sky rather than along a, a track. Yeah, Hot Wheels for the space generation. Um, so the, the slingshot actually physically is a vacuum-sealed centrifuge. It just doesn't look especially like one. The centrifuge spins the projectile inside and then just hurls it straight up into space. And the projectiles themselves look like giant darts, which is pretty much exactly what they are. Uh, the company recently released a video of a test launch, um, their 10th, I think, which they conducted in September. The projectile carried a payload of sensors, instruments, and other kind of goodies from NASA, Airbus, and a bunch of other organizations and companies that they're working with. Now, the goal wasn't to get these items into space. It was to see uh, you know, if they'd be damaged during launch and during landing. Um, mm. And actually, when the projectile came down, it made a hole so deep it needed an excavator to <laughs> pull it out of the, the hole that it made in the desert. But amazingly, none of the equipment inside the projectile was damaged. Um, there's a, a link to the video in the show notes. It's it's very, very cool to watch. Very short as well, about three minutes. That sounds brilliant. Um, now... This uh, can they send people using this thing? Well, I, I, I want to know that because I, I mean I'm looking at these thing where people go on these G4 simulators and whatever, but this is way way faster than that. Come on, it, a lot lot faster. I mean I'm guessing no. Um, you know the the, <laughs> the words vacuum sealed centrifuge don't seem very conducive to human safety. Um, also, the centrifuge apparently creates ten thousand G. Oh, I wow. Mean, just no, then. an astonishing, yeah, just no. Um, you know, so I imagine those squishy humans might flex and wobble beyond their uh, integrity limits, a bit like a bullwhip. Uh -huh. um, so 
of course, there is this kind of enormous potential for this approach. Um, firstly, there's the energy saving and the environmental factors because you're not using all this rocket fuel. Uh, plus, you use exactly the same equipment for each launch. Mm. Uh, so the hope is that they could use this approach to cut the costs to around half a million dollars per launch. Uh, at the moment, the slingshot is only reaching heights of around 10,000 meters. So it's it's kilometers short of orbit at the moment, but they're getting higher and higher really, really uh, quickly. And the company does have a lot of strong backing. They've already got contracts in place with NASA, uh, and it was listed as one of the top 100 most influential companies by Time magazine earlier this year. So, you know, who knows? Move over, Elon. The Hot Wheels Space Cowboys are coming for you. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, right, Matt, where can people find out more about this and where can they look at your, you know, your, your fantastic writings, your pretty face, all of that kind of stuff? Uh, come and check out the uh, Culture Pop Substack, culturepop.substack.com. It's free. Um, I do actually make an effort to make the posts and promote things. So uh, just come and uh, take a look at that or subscribe to it and it'll appear in your inbox. There you go. Uh, and if you did miss any part of this show, download the podcast wherever you normally download it from or use the BFM app. It's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. This was Matt Splained. I'm Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.